Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. This month's cover story is near and dear to my heart. Michael Tizarin has written a lovely profile of 88-year-old Charlie Gabriel, a longtime member of the Preservation Hall Jazz Collective in New Orleans, and one of the most well-traveled musicians alive today. As it turns out, Charlie Gabriel is obsessed with chess. His Instagram account, Chess with Charlie, chronicles both his musical exploits and his chess encounters, and we borrowed heavily from it, with permission, of course, for the art for our story. We could not have found a better writer to tell Gabriel's story than Michael Tisserand. Uh, Michael is the author of three excellent books, The Kingdom of Zydeco, A History of Zydeco Music in Southwestern Louisiana, Sugarcane Academy, a recounting of the months after Katrina for him and his family, and how, together with others exiled by the the hurricane, the Sugarcane Academy came to anchor the lives of some of their children. And finally, his newest book, Crazy, George Harriman, A Life in Black and White, a vibrant biography of one of the most creative and influential cartoonists in American history. In his journalistic work, Tizarand has interviewed the likes of uh, Judacers, Danny Barker, John Boutet, and Big Chief Tootie Montana, and his writings are diverse. One of his most recent articles, A Letter from New Orleans in the Washington Spectator, is a point in reckoning with the effects of COVID-19 on New Orleans culture and our country writ large. It's well worth your time, and we'll link to it in the text accompanying this, uh, this podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Michael from his home in New Orleans, which has just survived a near-miss from Hurricane Laura, days before the 15th anniversary, so to speak, of Hurricane Katrina. I suspect we will touch on both Laura and Katrina in the discussion ahead. Michael, thanks for taking the time to talk to U.S. Chess. How are you doing? John, it's great to, great to be with you here. I'm doing, I'm doing very well, thanks. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, it is uh, Sunday morning, so there's uh, all sorts of other things you could be doing, but uh, that you're doing this is, is much appreciated. I owe you quite a bit for giving me, the, uh, giving me an excuse to pester Charlie Gabriel on the phone, at least, <laughs> and, uh, and hear his chess stories. And as you can imagine, the stories went in lots of directions It didn't make the, uh, the article as well. You know, he's just a raconteur, and he's had an amazing life, uh, so it was great to have an excuse to listen to his music and talk to him. So I'm, I'm in your debt. Well, we, we appreciate you doing it. I think our readers will appreciate you having written such a, a really good profile. Uh, now you, you didn't grow up in new Orleans, but you've been there for many years now. Mm-hmm. So what is your, what is your new Orleans conversion story? Oh man, actually, um, actually preservation hall figures into my new Orleans conversion story. Uh, I traveled here with uh, with my parents uh, at different times uh, as a kid, and I was a uh, college sophomore. You know, now kids have this thing called a gap year, but back then we just called it dropping out, uh, and that's <laughs> what I did. Um, 
and decided to uh, go to New Orleans. I just read uh, this book by George Orwell, Down and Out in Paris and London, and thought I should try to recreate that in the uh, restaurants of the French Quarter for some reason. So, uh, so it was Christmas Eve, actually. Uh, I landed and went to Preservation Hall and, and uh, heard Kid Thomas Valentine and his band there and, and got a, a flop house for a while. And, and uh, over time, started writing. Uh, I moved back and forth a lot, uh, but ended up sort of anchoring myself more and more in New Orleans and then writing about music first and then getting a job as an editor of the weekly paper Gambit here and then just continuing from there. So let, let's talk about Preservation Hall because uh, it's a pretty magical place. It is. Uh, but for those who have never been there, uh, tell us about the hall uh, and tell us what goes on there. Uh, well, I go into it just so briefly into the into the into the article. So I certainly would recommend people go to their website, uh, check out the music, uh, go to YouTube, uh, and especially see this great new documentary that came out called "A Tuba to Cuba." Uh, which, uh, from what I understand, there's outtakes uh, when they they went to Cuba and they took Charlie around to parks to play old chess guys, and uh, Charlie said he got his uh, his butt handed to him uh, by some old guy at a park in Cuba. Um, but that didn't actually make it in the documentary, sadly. Uh, but Preservation Hall is a place that was started uh, by the current, uh, the current owner, uh, Ben Jaffe. Uh, his parents started this as a place for an older generation of uh, jazz musicians to, um, to find an audience and for an audience to find them again. There were a lot of uh, old players like, that I got to see, uh, like Kid Thomas Valentine and Sweet Emma Barrett and these older players that did not really have a home uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, and they created a, a space for them and kind of turned a, uh, a jam session that was going on in a local art gallery into this club and uh, became kind of legendary because it was a music club in the French Quarter that did not serve drinks, and you paid a couple bucks and there was wooden, wooden benches, uh, you know, no creature comforts whatsoever, but it was just completely uh, authentic and spirited uh, music. Uh, and it's continued over the years. Um, <clears throat> one thing I credit Ben Jaffe with a lot is keeping the spirit of the old preservation hall while also creating relationships with rock musicians. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a great duet that, uh, that Charlie Gabriel does with the Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl, and, and uh, you know, creating those kind of moments as well while keeping the uh, keeping the, the, the sort of the original mission of Preservation Hall intact. So uh, once we're all back and running again, um, it's also known for having a long line outside of it to get in. Uh, but I think uh, the current Preservation Hall now allows you to pay a little extra and get a reservation. Even That would be the uh, the big shot ticket. Yeah, yeah, right, which I've never actually done yet. But uh, No, I've, I've thought about it a couple nights. It, but, seems, um, it does seem worthwhile. I've also, sadly, I've, I've, I'm such a... a Early bird these days, I missed some of the most magical uh, midnight uh, midnight at the preserves. I think it's called. Yeah, midnight preserves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I always hear about those the next day about what I missed. Sadly, but uh, but they've had some great events there. And like I said, when it's back up and running, uh, it, it'll 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 be I'll be better for it. Yeah, I um, I I have been to the hall probably ten times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I keep the ticket stubs on my desk. They're sitting here right in front of me. In fact, I can, we're, we're actually doing this with video so I can, I can show you. I, there they are. I, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a pretty amazing place to get to see traditional jazz if that's what you're into. And even if you're not, um, you know, uh, the, the music is amazing 
and you're 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 sitting you know feet away from some of the best musicians in New Orleans. Yeah, and when I was, uh, when I was uh, yeah when I was at college dropout uh, hearing Kid Thomas Valentine, I was sitting basically at his feet. Yeah, so intimate that he emptied out his spit valve basically on top of me. <laughs> it's 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 like a blessing, yeah. It's yeah. like a dis- dispensation from above, yeah. <laughs> now it's um it, it's it's an amazing place, and uh, you know one of the things that I think might be worth talking about is as we talk about you know, what is going on in New Orleans today uh, when we talk about that that piece um, letter from New Orleans uh, is, is what's happening to the clubs right now and how they're they're struggling to survive, uh, but we'll we'll get there. So uh, this cover story is is about Preservation Hall in part, but it's mostly about Charlie Gabriel. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, who is Charlie Gabriel, and why is he so important and, dare I say, beloved in trad jazz circles? Um, well, really, you can just kind of go to um, go see to if you have if you can't actually get to go hear Charlie Gabriel, uh, just go check out that documentary or go on YouTube and see a few minutes with him. Uh, his warmth and liveliness, as well as his you know great musicianship on saxophone and clarinet. Um, uh, that that just announces them first. Uh, but when you spend time with them, he's clearly uh, the way that Ben Jaffe, the current owner of Preservation Hall, uh, talks about him. He's a real mentor uh, and a real uh, connection, and uh, uh, and and is very pleased to be a connection between musicians from his era uh, and musicians today. I mean, he he came up. Uh, you know, working with uh, many of the greats, uh, including Aretha Franklin, uh, and uh, and he has those stories to tell. But he also is he's the youngest person I've ever spoken to in spirit as well. I mean, there's there's no sense of talking to a, a guy that's old and out of touch and talking to Charlie Gabriel at all. Uh, it was kind of shocking for me, to be honest. Uh, once I started conversing with him, um, I'd remind myself of his age and that that I indeed was younger than he was. <laughs> um, so, um, and that's, and, and chess is one of his vehicles for that. Uh, but you know, he's also one of these people who left town, uh, as so many musicians do, um, from, uh, you know, Louis Armstrong who didn't come back to people like Dr. John, uh, who, who did, and, you know, went to California and other places. Um, and, uh, he's one of these, persons that found his way back here. So he sort of brought his cosmopolitan experiences uh, and his international experiences back to New Orleans as well. Uh, so he's, he's, but, but really he's just uh, an incredibly uh, warm presence that brings that spirit effortlessly to his performances as well as in conversation and personal life. So, so Charlie is uh, 88 years old yeah. and uh, as Wisely, I think he is uh, maintaining a pretty strict quarantine at his home just outside in New Orleans. So, how how did this interview come together? Well, that was my one regret. Uh, in another day, uh, I certainly would have gotten this assignment, and my first thing would have, my first idea would have been to have the whole interview take place over a game of chess with him um, and narrate his stories as uh, you know we're we're moving chess pieces. Um, that was not possible. So. Uh, it, it just it came uh, came through with a phone conversation, uh, and he was very. Uh, it wasn't difficult to talk on the phone with him at all. So uh, so sadly, it had to be a long extended. I forgot exactly how long we talked, but he was in no hurry, and neither was I. <laughs> and uh, and that's and that's and then we checked back a couple times, and I was 
double checking. Are you 87, 88, 89? When's your birthday? You know, those, those kind of things. Um, but, uh, but really it was just one long, incredibly enjoyable phone conversation. So, um, Michael, I'm assuming you've seen the, the cover for this issue. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a Josh Goldman photo uh, of Charlie Gabriel playing chess. I assume at home, um, although I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it's a very evocative photo. We're really glad to have it. So thank you to Josh for, uh, for letting us use it. It's a beautiful photo, and it captures Charlie Gabriel and everything about New Orleans that I truly love is kind of written across Charlie's face. You know, the warmth and open expressiveness, uh, as well as, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, clarity and genius in his eyes. And, and the, that, that photo really captures it in a beautiful way. So I think it's a gorgeous cover. We, um, we chose to use the Preservation Hall motto, protect, preserve, perpetuate, as the, um, as the title, so to speak, for the, for the cover. And as someone who's been to the hall and as someone who is uh, intimately familiar with, with New Orleans music and culture, I'm, I'm wondering what those three words mean to you, both in terms of uh, the hall itself, but also New Orleans writ large. Protect is a hard one. Because we know in New Orleans that protecting our city is still very much an open question. You know, in a time of rising seas and climate change, um, more work simply has to be done uh, to truly uh, keep the city safe over over the next years. And since we're talking about Preservation Hall, we're talking about generations and really over the next generations. Um, and uh, that's still... Um, that's still a real challenge for us. Uh, and uh, preserve, um, you know, while we're doing that, to try to um, find those pieces of our history. We're kind of at a time, right, where, where we are rethinking re, uh, uh, how we got here uh, and thinking about the people who contributed to the vision of who we are. Uh, you know, New Orleans, like other places, are dealing with... Um, is dealing with, uh, actually kind of led the way with our former Mayor Mitch Landrieu, dealing with Confederate memorials and Confederate monuments and, and trying to understand uh, our history and see if we've told our history accurately uh, over the years uh, and what should be preserved, what what really what really is truly wonderful about, about our city that should be preserved. And part of it is, uh, well, Maybe maybe the cornerstone of that is is this great cultural explosion that was jazz music that that is so much of what Preservation Hall is about, um, and how the the sort of uh, embodiment of liveliness and uh, perseverance uh, and uh, generational continuity uh, as well as improvisation, uh, all that stuff we're going to need to move forward is really right there in the music if we're listening for it. Um, and perpetuate, keep it going. That's, that's whether I think whether in, in figuring out how to keep, uh, chess classes alive. So the next first grader, you know, that, that wants to, uh, learn what this, what this game is all about and why it's so much fun or, um, or what preservation hall is doing with music and, uh, and other entities in new Orleans, as far as getting, uh, trombones and trumpets and tubas in the hands of, of kids to pick up and play and start the next uh, brass band. You mentioned I did a profile of Danny Barker. Um, he was somebody I really admired a lot and was really honored to spend a lot of time with. And he was an, a jazz musician, very much like Charlie Gabriel, in the sense that he touched on a lot of uh, eras of jazz, um, you know, from bebop to, uh, to traditional to... Uh, 
you know, he played in Cab Calloway's band, but he came back to New Orleans like Charlie Gabriel did. They're, yeah, actually, they're very similar in a lot of ways now that I think about it. And uh, Danny started a, a, a band called the Fairview Baptist Church Band, which kind of started the modern brass band renaissance. And people like Wynton Marcellus came through, came through that band. Um, so that that spirit of, of teaching the next generation, I think, is is clearly what Preservation Hall uh, is. That's part of their mission, and um, hopefully, we'll continue to be part of what we're doing in New Orleans uh, writ large as well. It's 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 interesting because in New Orleans there is the the notion of a culture bearer, mm-hmm. and and people are called culture bearers. It could be uh, you know black masking Indians. Right. Uh, it could be musicians, you know, artists. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often thought that that's one of the the things that we're lacking in the chess world. That hmm. uh, that we should be honoring, you know, our our, our and not, not not necessarily the greatest players who ever were, but those who perpetuated the tradition, those who perpetuated the knowledge and wrote the books and taught the classes. Right. Um, and and we don't seem to do that in a way. I mean, no one does it in a way that New Orleans does. But um, you know, for anyone who is interested uh, in in what an editor in, in in what Chess Life magazine is going to look under my editorial reign, mm-hmm. um, if you had to read it, read three words: protect, preserve, perpetuate. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, um, and it's 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 weird for me to think about that, but you know, the way I'm trying to edit and the way I'm trying to put together Chess Life, it, it comes from the things that I learned by reading about the hall and, and, and reading about new Orleans and, and trying to understand, you know, what a culture bearer is. So, uh, I throw that out there just because some people might be wondering and, and, but the more I think they see it, the more they're going to understand that this is where it's coming from. Yeah. And in chess, uh, and in music, you can approach it from so many different directions. Uh, you know, you can, you can approach chess as a tournament player, uh, mm-hmm. And you can also approach it uh, as someone like Charlie Gabriel, who loves, who's got an extra half hour in front of him. He's going to stick a board there, whether he's backstage at a music festival or in his house or at a coffee shop or, or you know, and and uh, and, get, and get a game going and teach somebody else how to play the game. Um, yeah. And uh, that's, that's I think, why I was um, a little surprised, actually, uh, and, and delighted that, that you wanted to focus him, focus on him uh, th- this way. I think I maybe mentioned to you even, you know, I don't think he's a tournament player. You know, I don't think he's a, but, but chess is, uh, some, there's something essential about chess and something essential about, about Charlie Gabriel that, uh, that, uh, are, are married. And yeah. Uh, it was really fun to, fun to learn about that. Yeah. As soon as this is over, I'm, I'm, uh, hoping to, uh, parlay this, this, this cover and this story into meeting him and getting to play him. Uh, but uh, I'll let you have first dibs. So. Oh, oh, that's going to be a party. You, me, and then um, the uh, magnetic ear. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now. The uh, the musician and saxophone player uh, that I interviewed for this piece. Yes. Uh, let me see if I can find it very, very briefly. Yeah, I don't want to do him wrong because... Uh, I've got it right in front of me. I, actually, I have the, the issue right here. And, of course, we're just killing time, so... <laughs> Well, let me say while you're looking at that that he's actually repaired my son's saxophone in the past, and uh, and his band Magnetic Ear is really an amazing band. They sort of create New Orleans brass band versions of Prince songs and things like that, um, and it's a really adventurous, wonderful band. I recommend everybody check them out as well. Martin Krushki. Yeah, Krushki. 
Martin. I don't know how to pronounce the last name either. Uh, I'm assuming it's German as he is German born. So Kreschke or something along those lines. But yeah, from Magnetic Ear, check them out if you are so inclined. But yeah, so Martin, uh, Martin's uh, chess parties with Charlie just sound like an incredible blast when I heard them talking about getting together. And uh, they used to be really casual. Uh, they might imbibe a little bit before uh, before a game. And then it started to get serious. And they said, that, that, that all ended, you know, no, <laughs> it's just like, you know, a cup of tea and, uh, and hardcore chess. And that's it. Uh, yeah. So, uh, it, so anyway, I think, uh, you, me, uh, and Martin lives over in Music Musicians Village, uh, in the, uh, the Habitat for Humanity housing that was uh, constructed after Katrina, that Harry Connick Jr. and Bradford Marcellus were a big part of. So Martin's got a place over there. So, uh, anyway, I think that's, uh. Martin, if you're listening to this, we're coming over to your house for a party with Charlie when this whole thing opens up again. As soon as humanly possible, yes. Um, let's switch tracks a little bit. Let's talk about your books because um, having been reading, uh, I've gotten through, I've gotten through one of them and two of them I'm in the middle of, and uh, they're really very fascinating. They're all very different. Um, although I, I think there is uh, perhaps one theme that sort of underpins them all. And I'll be curious to talk to you about that as we get uh, as we talk more about crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but the first book uh, that you that came out in 1998 and then was reissued four years ago mm -hmm. is the Kingdom of Zydeco. So uh, I guess my first question is is where does the name Zydeco come from, and how is it different than uh, Cajun music? Well, Zydeco music. Uh, if you're if people listening have heard Zydeco, they might have heard Buckwheat Zydeco, who uh, you know had a lot of uh, had a lot of success. Um, there have been movies here and there. They're all old movies now. When I did that book, they were new movies. You know, like the Big Easy in place and um, and movies like that that got got it out there, got the sound out there. Um, Zydeco music is played by uh, French and English speaking uh, Creoles from South Louisiana and East Texas, uh, as well as California and other places that they migrated to. Um, it's based around an accordion and a rub board or a foitois or a washboard, which is a corrugated metal percussion instrument. Uh, and then there's a rhythm section with uh, bass and guitar and drums and sometimes horns. Um, and there's a lot of blues and rhythm blues uh, uh, folded into the music as well. Uh, Clifton Chenier, who was the king of Zydeco, um, loved to play Ray Charles and Fats Domino songs on his accordion. And uh, so that's, that's part of it as well. And now you've got these uh, young, uh, young Zydeco, younger Zydeco musicians, uh, J. Paul Jr., Keith Frank, Chris Ardouin, uh, who are playing accordion-based dance music, but they're also folding uh, rap and hip-hop and, and other stuff into it, contemporary R&B uh, as well. So it's a very, it's a very alive music uh, and, a, and a, a traditional music that adapts to its times really well. Um, Cajun music, is, and, and it's also incredibly, it's so interwoven with Cajun music that to tease them out and separate those strands um, kind of doesn't do, doesn't do it justice. Um, but they are different in a lot of ways. Uh, Cajun music uh, is the music of the French-speaking uh, Acadians uh, uh, or Cajuns who came out of Acadiana, came out of Nova Scotia, the area that's now Nova Scotia, and brought their fiddle music and, and later accordion music. Uh, uh, two steps and waltzes and uh, other other dance traditions down to South Louisiana, um, but uh, the earliest I think that here's in talking about the uh, the interwoven nature of this music. 
and, and, and also I should mention Cajun music sometimes borrows a bit more from country music. You might get a slide guitar, a pedal steel. You get uh, there are performers like Doug Kershaw and Jimmy C. Newman, who are Nashville stars with, with sort of Cajun underpinnings. Um, but the earliest, deepest uh, seedbed of Cajun, Creole, and Zydeco music were these recordings made by this guy, Amade Ardouin. I just mentioned Chris Ardouin. Amade is one of his ancestors. Uh, Amade Ardouin, a black Creole accordion player, and Dennis McGee, a, a Cajun fiddler. And you can imagine, uh, in a, a, a dangerously segregated time, they came together and played and recorded music together. We have recordings of their music from the 1920s. Um, and it's, and, and that music has been, uh, returned to again and again and again. Uh, so that's, that's the protecting, preserving and perpetuating, uh, certainly applies to, uh, to the musicians of, of Cajun and Zydeco and Creole, uh, styles now. That are keeping up that uh, that tradition going. Uh, I didn't answer the question about uh, the word zydeco. It's very complicated uh, because it's, it, it seems to uh, relate to uh, to certain West African languages. Um, but the the most commonly understood uh, and certainly part of the story uh, is that it comes from a French term lazdarico, which is snap beans. And there's an early uh, Creole song. Uh, recorded by the Lomax uh, father and son team that came down and did folk recordings in Louisiana uh, of uh, Jimmy Peters and the Ring Dancers singing a song, Donnie Zydeco, A Mama Zydeco Pasale, which means uh, give me the Zydeco, the Zydeco is not salty. So basically saying that the beans are not salty, there's no salt meat in which to flavor the beans. So it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor for poverty. And a lot of early Zydeco songs uh, have those metaphors for poverty. There's a guy, Buzu Chavis, that did a song called Paper in My Shoe, which is all about uh, having to put paper in, in his shoe because his shoe is wearing out. Uh, but then these blues turn into dance tunes. You know, Zydeco, you know, it doesn't, it, when you see somebody dancing to Paper in My Shoe or Zydeco Pasale, it doesn't look like they're complaining, they're celebrating, which is, which is really kind of an, what really attracts me to the music. So how how did you start uh, how how did you start your interest in Zydeco? What what led you to write the book? Well, remember I, I mentioned I dropped out of college and came to New Orleans. I found my way to a place called the Maple Leaf Bar in New Orleans, and uh, there was a band John Delafosse and the Eunice Playboys playing, uh, as well as a couple of Cajun bands, Bruce Degrapon and Bouray, and they had regular sets there. And uh, it had nothing to do with the desire to be part of the protecting and preserving and perpetuating. It, all it had to do with was walking into the Maple Leaf and seeing this floor full of people dancing as couples, which is something that I did not see at all growing up. You know, my, my dance tradition was standing in one place and kind of, uh, you know, shaking your shoulders and you know, a little bit. Uh, I, I'm not unfamiliar with that style. <laughs> And this was, and we did a disco for a while when I was growing up, actually. But for this, what I saw in the Maple Leaf was stunning. It was incredibly sexy and uh, and exciting. And uh, the dancing was, was incredible to watch. And I wanted to try to learn it. So that's that's really where it started. So, in the preface to the to the new edition of the book, you you talk about the various the, the very serious changes in Zydeco culture, so to speak, mm-hmm. in the eighteen years since you first published the book. Um, what are those differences, and, and what do they mean more broadly? Um, 
Well, we lost we lost a lot of the people that I wrote about in the book. Uh, so a lot of that that sort of first and second generation uh, Creole musicians. I was able to find and talk with a few folks like Bebe Carrier, who is a, a, an amazing Creole fiddler, um, and uh, Boisek Ardouin, and uh, and other people that had been active, uh, you know, through through the very early years of the sound. Um, and then I was talking with people who had re, re sort of energized the music, like Bojak, uh, who is still, you know, when I put on Zydeco, I often will put on Bojak. Uh, I, I've gotten speeding tickets for driving with, with Bojak playing in my car, uh, literally. Uh, it's just such an incredibly exciting music that he created, uh, who passed away uh, too young. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of those folks are gone now, and what we're seeing in Zydeco, um, and a lot of the dance clubs are gone too, actually. Uh, the, the, the Slim's Waikiki, Richard's Club, dance scenes that I described in the book are, are sort of part of Zydeco history now. But you still do see these, uh, well, you did. I don't, I don't know what it's like right now in the COVID era, uh, but up until the COVID era, you saw these massive uh, trail rides uh, still going on out in the Louisiana fields and plains and prairies uh, where a musician like Keith Frank or Jay Paul or Chris or others uh, would, would play music that really uh, works for its crowd. And it, 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 uh, it draws on Zydeco, but also draws on whatever music, uh, you know, is popular uh, uh, that's coming from other places. And, uh, so that's it's it, that's what Zydeco is doing now. But Zydeco has always done that, um, and Zydeco has always changed with its time. Like I mentioned, Clifton was playing Ray Charles songs uh, because he wanted an audience. That's that's what, you know that's he, I think he certainly loved Ray Charles also, but uh, he knew his people wanted wanted Ray Charles, so so he would play you know he played it on the accordion. Uh, it's kind of amazing uh, what what can uh how the accordion can filter so many different types of music through uh through louisiana like that uh, you, you know you kind of think of accordion as being a uh a lawrence welkish uh you know limited instrument but boy uh it is just limitless uh in the hands of a great zydeco player uh, buckwheat zydeco who also passed away you know fairly recently and also uh also way too young um you know, could do everything from Hank Williams to uh, to the Rolling Stones uh, on, on on the accordion and do it so well. Wow, it's um, yeah. This is making me. I I have to admit, in my uh, traversing of New Orleans music, I have not paid Zydeco that much uh, that much mind. But I, I feel like maybe I need to give it another chance now. So it's not really New Orleans. That's that's the thing. So right, right, right. So, but um, but certainly it's got a great representation at the New Orleans Jazz Fest. Uh, when you come down for that, the Fado Do stage uh, brings the best players there. So, um, well, um, I'd be eager to get back out to it too. So put that uh, right after the uh, chess night with Charlie. We'll go for a side of night. Day two. That's it. <laughs> Day two. <laughs> um. So a lot of a lot of Zydeco country is southwest Louisiana and East Texas, as you said. And uh, Hurricane Laura uh, just took dead aim at that area, and the, the devastation from what we're learning is um, uh, it's astounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- so what do we know right now about the extent of the damage? And, and have you spoken to any of your friends in the Zydeco community about how they're doing? Uh, I checked in with a few people, uh, and just to find out that everyone was fine. Um, the uh, 
a couple of people from Lake Charles that I knew uh, have passed away. Uh, so Abuzu Chavis and his family uh, uh, was the one I probably knew the best, um, and they're not there anymore. Uh, the Ardwens uh, live in Lake Charles, and um, uh, they're they're fine. I do not know about what kind of property damage they might have might, they might have sustained, uh, what kind of help they might need uh, building back up again. Knowing the Zydeco world the way it does, nobody throws a fundraiser like a like a like like a Zydeco uh, crowd. So, uh, if, especially the Arduans, because they're you know quite a. In fact, the last the last uh, music I heard before uh, COVID shut down live music was uh, at the Saint Landry Parish Visitor Center, and it was uh, Chris Arduan and his father uh, Lawrence Arduan playing an accordion. Uh, at this place that had just erected a, uh, a beautiful statue of Amade Arduin. Um, but, um, so, uh, I don't, I don't know again, what, what kind of damage they might've sustained, but I note that they're, they're all uh, healthy and fine. Uh, New Orleans has filled with thousands of, of evacuees from that area. Uh, they're in, uh, the hotels downtown, the Hilton and, and uh, Sheridan and other hotels. Um, it was really, um, you know, yesterday was the 15th anniversary of, of Hurricane Katrina, uh, which for those of us that went through it, um, is, uh, it's always just an incredibly sobering, uh, time. Uh, and, uh, depending on how you went through it, if you have, you know, actual physical memories of floods or losing family, which, uh, I do not have, um, but uh, but it, it was amazing to see that new, so many people I knew in Lafayette and New Orleans were using that time to try to figure out how to help Hurricane Laura people, um, and uh, it it was um, it was very moving to see and very moving to be a part of. I, I kind of jumped in and did a little bit, uh, and uh, and it was. Um, you know, just a reminder that we're all in this together. And I think, I think Louisiana, uh, is a place with a lot of awareness of that, of, of whether it's good times or bad times of this feeling of we're all in it together. Um, we certainly test that. We don't always experience that. We've got lots of things that divide us. Uh, but there is a sort of core belief of that, that's, that's, that you can touch into if you want to. That, that actually leads me into the next, into your next book and to talk about that. Um, as you say, this this weekend is the fifteenth anniversary, and to have uh, Laura come through is, is a I'm sure it must be a ridiculous echo to have to to grapple with. Um, in 2007, you wrote Sugarcane Academy, mm-hmm. which is the story of your family's months after Katrina, where you went, what you saw, and how you coped. Um, in, in part by setting up a school in exile for a handful of children, including your own. So tell us about the book. Tell us about that process. And tell us about Paul Raynaud. Yeah, you know, I have not checked in with Paul Raynaud uh, in, in the last uh, few few months, and I've been meaning to do that. Uh, he's retired now. Um, we, uh, we landed. Uh, my wife's a pediatrician, uh, and uh, she stayed behind. Uh, but got out before the uh, before the floods, before the levees broke, and the uh, the water started uh, pouring into the city. Uh, thankfully, uh, my two kids and my wife and my three cats were all out of the uh, of the city by then and staying with friends in Karen Crow, Louisiana. Um, 
And like anybody with school-aged children, that was our first uh, concern about what to do with our, our kids. Uh, and we found out that Paul Reno, who is a boy, um, he's sort of a jazz musician of a teacher, uh, incredibly improvisatory, um, as unpredictable, I think of a chess metaphor, as Michael Tall, Michael Tall, how do you pronounce his first name? Kind of, uh, Mikhail, I think Mikhail, is, uh, you Mikhail, can go either way with it. It was Mikhail Tall, I think. On the, uh, so he, just an, an amazingly caring uh, uh, and smart and wise teacher. And we found out that he had evacuated in the general area. So we called him up and said, any chance of uh, trying to start some kind of school? And for him, there was a chance to finally leave administration behind and make the kind of school that he wanted to make very experiential learning, uh, drawing from the experience people were having through the evacuation, memories of Katrina, uh, and turning that into the, what became known as Sugarcane Academy. And then after a couple months, when New Orleans opened up again, we found a place on the empty campus of Loyola University. And it was really kind of the first school that was open back in New Orleans. Uh, and it was open to anybody that, that uh, heard about it, that wanted to get there. Uh, you know, we kind of raised money on our own uh, to pay for teachers that were starting to come and and uh, and and join in, and it kept building until January when uh, a lot of the kids' schools uh, uh, got going again. It was based largely based around uh, a one school that my kid went to, my kids went to, um, but became this kind of a uh, a moment, an educational moment. Uh, I've revisited that a lot uh, that time as I'm. I have so many friends who are teachers and and have been checking in with them about what they're doing now with COVID. Um, I, I have to say, by the way, that was, I mean, the book spoke to me on a number of levels, mm -hmm. uh, but as, as a parent who is facing these same sorts of issues, um, you know, I, I think it, it resonates in a way that might be entirely different than you intended right now. Yeah, uh, it has with me. I, I've, I've visited that a couple of times. Um, and uh, that uh, there's certainly certainly important differences, but of course, right. But being in a position of of trying to make make it up as you go along, <laughs> what's happening uh, now? Uh, this American Life just had a really good uh, feature this week about teachers uh, spending the summer trying to figure out how to make online education work or whatever hybrids they're going to be facing. Um, so that idea of Im improvising within the form of education. Uh, it's certainly come up again. Yeah, I, th there was a moment actually in the book where um, I was just—it was totally lovely. The when uh, you, you had started the campus on at, at the Loyola campus, and uh, you had basically commandeered one of the floors of one of their buildings because yeah. uh, <laughs> w w who, who was the, uh, the the person who basically owned the first three floors? Oh yeah, I, I don't remember her name, but but right, she she was you know you know there's people that are in charge, and then there's people who are really in charge, right. And the, the trick is to get to the people who are like, you know, in high school, you learn that the, 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 the people who work in the office are more in charge than the actual principal, right? Yes. If you can get on there, you know, so that, that extends into adult life as well. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't remember her name right now. There, but, there's I, a, there's a moment in the book where, um, you're talking about, uh, you know, someone finally catches on and starts, um, <laughs> and, and, and says, um, you know, well, we're gonna have to get permission. And this woman says, well, let me. We'll do it now. I'll ask permission later, and then uh, you get this quote from the the president of Loyola, who is a uh, you know some sort of uh, reverend, some sort of uh, Catholic brother, 
And he says it's the easiest decision, the easiest decision he's had to make in weeks yeah. to let the school keep going on, which I thought was just, it was very poignant uh, at that moment. Yeah. It, it was because we really didn't know, uh, you know, and, and, and when you've lost so much, um, and I think this is maybe, this is maybe where it connects most to this COVID era that when you're losing so much, you look to your children and hope to try to keep their spirit going and their growth, uh, you know, and their movement forward uh, going. And, and that becomes your, that becomes your life. Um, and uh, I think, I think that, that action um, of, of tr- and then that that also often frustrated action of trying to of trying to keep things going for your kids is what you know is what people are experiencing now. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we we can't begin to delve into the history of Katrina and and its aftermath. Um, if, if we had hours, we couldn't do it. But I, I wonder what your sense is of how New Orleans has changed in the intervening fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, how, how is the new New Orleans different from the one you left that day in, in August of 2005? Um, it is, uh, this is going to be a very impressionistic answer, uh, you know, how, how I sense it. Um, uh, it, is still, uh, it is still a city that loves its traditions. Um, we lost a, uh, a woman who was a Mardi Gras, uh, Indian royalty, uh, Kim Bute, uh, recently and the, uh, turnout for her and the, the citywide expression of love for her, uh, was a reminder of how essentially you mentioned the, you know, that, that a culture bear is, uh, in, in New Orleans. Um, so that is, is still very much, uh, part of who we are, um, it is, uh, you know, in many ways we face um, problems that a lot of American cities uh, face now, issues of gentrification, issues of rising rent and, uh, uh, you know, inequality of wealth and people uh, doing essential services. What we are reminded more and more lately are essential services of stocking the damn groceries on the shelves at the, at the you know, at the supermarket, um, but yet are not... Uh, you know, are not able after, after a full week's work, uh, to really pay for, uh, pay for a decent house, uh, in, in the city. Um, so, so New Orleans faces that, uh, as much as in any American city and in some ways even more, uh, because we're so heavily based on tourism, uh, as an economy right now. It, it's, it's hard to answer that because of course the, 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 the past six or seven months, you know, has changed everything so much right now with tourism uh, almost completely, you know, wiped out. Um, you know, we're really just kind of, you know, so many people are hanging on, uh, by a thread and, and that includes artists and musicians and, and, you know, all the people that we, uh, that when someone comes to New Orleans, the people they want to f- go here. Um, so, uh, and they want, and, and, and those are the people that reflect New Orleans back to us in so many ways. Uh, you know, a, um, a musician like, uh, 
you know, Alex McMurray or, uh, um, um, I'm having a, a, a COVID Katrina moment here, uh, <laughs> I'm able to, uh, Paul San, Paul Sanchez. I was, mm. uh, I mean, you know, somebody like Paul Sanchez, uh, and, and Alex and others, uh, some, and, and John Butte, uh, so, so many, uh, make the music that reminds us who we are as New Orleanians. Um, Paul Sanchez, I can't forget his name because he's also a chess player and I actually played a few online games with him, uh, over the, ah, course well, that, so, that is interesting. You should have put that in the story. I could have looked like we could have, uh, well, we'll have to invite him over with, uh, when we invite ourselves to Charlie's house. Boy, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> <laughs> that was, this is getting to be a great, great, it's, goal. it's going to be a, it's going to be a blowout to end all blowouts. Um, we are we're going long, but that's okay. This is so good. I, I'm not at all worried about it. But we, we should talk about uh, your, your newest book, uh, Crazy, um, which is about George Harriman, uh, who, who I think and, and I didn't really understand this, uh, but he, I think he's probably one of the most important creative forces in 20th century American art. I believe, um, and and much of it turns on a key feature of Harriman's biography that eluded scholars for years. Mm-hmm. So so who was George Harriman? Um, and what was that bit of information that that really seems to have turned everything around in terms of understanding him and his art? George Harriman uh, was a cartoonist. Uh, the uh, often uh, the Comics Journal uh, uh, declared him the greatest 20th century cartoonist, with Charles Schultz, uh, who drew Peanuts, um, being number two. It gives you a sense of, of <laughs> Harriman's stature. Um, because his work is so, uh, just simply, uh, so beautiful and, uh, dense in the best possible way. Uh, you know, just really, uh, dense with, with beauty, with meaning, with language, uh, with, uh, uh, and it's all, uh, it's all uh, about a, uh, white, uh, mouse that throws a brick at a black cat. Uh, Ignaz mouse throws a brick at a black cat named crazy and crazy, uh, can only interpret such an act as an act of love and considers, and, and, and this is sort of strange uh, relationship between the two of them. And then there's a dog named officer pup that arrests the mouse for throwing the brick at the cat. Uh, but the pup really secretly loves the mouse or loves, loves the cat. Um, so, um, uh, uh, and this went on, uh, in, from in the newspapers from 1910 to 1944 when, uh, when Harriman died. And, uh, it was, popular in its time as sort of an emblematic jazz age comic in the 1920s. Um, but, uh, but really it was just deeply influential on, uh, writers and artists, um, across the board from poets like Carl Sandburg and T.S. Eliot, uh, Picasso loved uh, crazy cat. It turns out, uh, and, uh, and so many others. And then Charles Schultz himself said that when he read crazy cat, he knew that he wanted to make more than just a simple cartoon about little children. He had to bring, you know, real, uh, ideas and, and his own philosophy into the, into the work. Um, uh, and, and so many others have been influenced. Um, so, uh, so it was, it was appreciated certainly. Um, and then, uh, in the 1970s, a birth certificate was located, uh, that identified uh, George Harriman, born in 1880 in New Orleans, in the Tremaine neighborhood, and then parentheses it said C O L O R E D, colored uh, for race. And it wasn't quite sure what exactly that meant for a long time. And really, until I started doing the work, it was not sure what what that actually meant. There's City Hall in New Orleans, and the official documents produced uh, 
are not always things you can you can trust here, and uh, especially when it comes to issues of race uh, in the 19th century. Uh, but it turned out that not only were the Harrimans uh, a part of a group of people known as free people of color uh, before the Civil War, uh, not only were they Creoles of color, but they were incredibly politically active. They um, signed on to petitions that a family friend gave to Abraham Lincoln himself for voting rights. They were they had a they were a, a middle class uh, folks, uh, upper upper to middle class folks with a tailor shop on Royal Street in the quarter. Um, had a great life here, but then when uh, you know at post Reconstruction, uh, when the Jim Crow uh, laws and and uh, mentality started to settle over New Orleans, the Harrimans moved to California, where they passed as white, where they self-identified as white for the rest of their lives. Um, What's incredible about Crazy Cat when you read it now is how many questions of race and social identity Harriman was able to ask within the framework of a comic strip that ran in a commercial newspaper uh, from 1910 to 1944. Uh, it, just, it just explodes with, with, uh, with ideas about that, even though he had to do it sort of on the down low. Um, and how much of it was his conscious choice and how much was just for him bringing himself to his work uh, is, I think, still an open question, even though I spent years and years and years with him. Uh, it's still kind of an open question on what exactly he was going for there. But what we have is this beautiful work that I think uh, is uh, a, really essential, a really essential piece of work for understanding uh, 20th century America. Um, and understanding uh, the kinds of voices that have created uh, our identity as 21st century Americans. Um, so that was the, that's the that's the Harriman story. So I, I tell his tale, and along the way, uh, you know, he was part of this explosive uh, boxing match in 1910 between Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffries, which led to uh, riots and uh, uh, racial violence across across the country. Um, because a, a black champion defended his title against a white challenger. Um, he was part of the Hal Roach Studios when they were filming Laurel and Hardy movies and Our Gang movies. He was there uh, making making Crazy Cat the whole time. Uh, he had a uh, love relationship with the southwestern desert in Arizona. Um, and, and so he, he really he shows up in all these really amazing times. And... Uh, is a, a story I was really happy to bring to light and a person I was really happy and still very happy to spend a lot of time with through his art. Yeah, you um, you are very active still um, on, on your Twitter account, uh, M underscore Tizarand, where you're talking about Crazy Cat and, and uh, I think you just launched a new feature on your website uh, called The Illustrated Crazy. Yeah, it's one of the things I've been doing during the, during the quarantine uh, is I put... Uh, because of the book was a, a HarperCollins publisher that did a great job. They put a lot of art into the book, but it, this was not, you know, a coffee table size, you know, massive book. They just could not put all the work into it that I cited in the book. So finally, after four years of the book being out, I basically took all of, all of the, uh, the PDFs that I had scanned from old newspapers that have never been republished since they were first uh, appeared in 19, you know, early 1900s. Uh, as well as other art and some photos I took, and I just put them all on my website. So, and they're all arranged by chapters. So, when I talk about 
George Harriman in 1901 making his first cartoons for William Hearst's paper. I've taken all those cartoons and put them up on the website so people can, can see all of them. And this is, again, it's michaeltizaran.com? Mm-hmm, it, it is. And if you go there, it's under extras. Um, and I've got a few things there under extras. Uh, one is that. There, I also did a George Harriman walking tour of the French Quarter where you can, uh, it was in conjunction with uh, this group called New Orleans Historical out of out of University of New Orleans where it just shows the the places that he uh, that his family uh, that helped create him and his family. And uh, there's also some audio there under uh, Creole Voices from old interviews I did uh, with Tootie Montana, a legendary Mardi Gras Indian chief, uh, Ken Ray Fontenot, a, a Creole fiddler, and uh, and Danny Barker. Uh, so I, I just took a couple minutes from my old cassette tapes and put that up there too. So trying to give some people some things to do during this lockdown. So when I when I've been reading these books, um, one of the things I've noticed is that, that the issue of race uh, can't be stripped out of them. That that it 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 shows itself in in so many different ways. Whether we're talking about zydeco music being the music of black creoles, as you describe it very early in the book, mm-hmm. um, or you know, I mean, Katrina can't be told without uh, the the story of Katrina. Yours and 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 that of so many others can't be told without uh, describing the way that race. Um, and and class played out uh, mm-hmm. in New Orleans in, in the response, and then particularly in, in Crazy, um, you know, trying to figure out not only Harriman's um, trying to tease out what it means to to have had colored listed on his birth certificate, but but more than that, to think about the way that race and gender um, are embodied in the comics themselves. I mean, Crazy Cat is mm-hmm. is is completely gender ambiguous. Absolutely. Uh, you know, re- referred to uh, as a he, as a she, and a, as a they mm-hmm. um, at different points along the way, sometimes in the same strip. Right. Um, it, it, it was very interesting. Same sentence, yeah. Yeah. It, it was fascinating to, to me to see the way this all sort of teased out. And, and in particular, because in, in New Orleans, race is a much more complicated. I don't mean. It's much more. Th- there's much more involved in the understanding of race. Mm-hmm. than in the rest of the American South. Um, you know, the, what, what does the word Creole mean? <laughs> I, I, I know, I just, you know, you, you got, we got all day. So, there yes. are books written on that subject, and it's a contested word. I mean, there were um, historians that I would uh, consider to be extremely problematic, or, or maybe just call them racist, uh, who set out to claim Creole as a strictly European, and then that's still, you still... We hear from people who do that now that 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 try to claim Creole as a, a sort of a strictly European uh, designation. Uh, you know, people came from 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 um, from Europe uh, uh, as a sort of a pure bloodline. Um, but uh, you know, there there truly are books based on it. Creole basically means uh, someone you know who is native born uh, that comes from a uh, a hodgepodge uh, like an old Pete Seeger song. Uh, uh, you know, we're all mixed up, um, or like uh, Barack Obama said so well, we're all mutts. Uh, you know, um, he called himself a mutt one time, and Patrick McDonald, the cartoonist that does a comic strip, mutts took it as a, a as a great compliment. Um, you know that 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 is that is part of our uh, part of our American experience is um, creating these dividing lines around race. And then defending them, uh, and uh, living and dying and killing over 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 these fictions, um, 
you know, uh, it, it is, uh, and we're seeing that, you know, being played out now, uh, yeah. that, uh, identifying ourselves as, uh, I'm speaking as a white person here, um, identifying myself as not black, um, for people who are white, uh, seems to be, uh, for some people who are white, seems to be, uh, a vital part of their self-identity. Harriman came along. One of my favorite daily strips uh, is when Ignatz and uh, Crazy Cat are sitting and talking, and uh, Crazy Cat says, uh, or Ignatz says, language is so we can understand each other. And Crazy Cat says, well, can you understand a, a, a Laplander or a Finn or an Oshkosher, meaning someone from Oshkosh, Wisconsin? <laughs> and, uh, and Ignatz says, no. And they, can they understand you? No. And Crazy Cat says, well, language is so we can misunderstand each other. And that's sort of, uh, that, that's, that's, I think, maybe Harriman's thesis more than anything else, is that, you know, that even embedded in our language, even embedded in what is black and what is white, um, and I actually I tried to get at that at a um, a piece that's on my website uh, about Barack Obama and Crazy Cat. Actually, um, you know, one of my favorite sort of things that that Barack Obama would do would go go to an Irish bar every St. Patrick's Day and toast his his Irish ancestors, um, which was a, a, of course he did. That that is that is part of who he was, but our vision is so. Um, limited our blinders are so affixed that we think of things in being in terms of black and white and then we ascribe all of this these these values to to what is black and what is white uh, it's 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 pretty shocking to see the the, the blinkeredness of, of of so much of our discourse um and and i have to admit one of the things that was important for me in beginning to re-understand you know and to try to understand all of this was was being in New Orleans and learning about the history of uh, of race there. Uh, you know, something like in in, in um, Plessy versus Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which is which is taught in the schools as this. You know, uh, uh, you know, a black man gets on a train and and says, uh, you know, I, I he's asked if he'll leave the white car and he says no. Mm-hmm. Um, what gets left out of that is that you know Homer Plessy was Creole. He was a free man of color. Right. Um, and in 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 all likelihood, he probably could have passed. Um, but in, in, he was chosen for that project actually, yeah. but get on and right. Exactly. And, and, and to my understanding, it was, it was something of a setup, right? That they knew that they knew the conductor who was going to ask the question and it was all designed, you know, to, to, to advance a case to the Supreme court to, to try to, uh, challenge the, the separate car act. Mm-hmm. But, but that bit of information that, um, you know, that, that Homer Plessy, uh, was a free man of color and, and in a different day, uh, would never well. I shouldn't say that, but in in some days, perhaps he wouldn't have been questioned for being there. Um, you know that, that that adds a different nuance to this that 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 somehow seems to be lacking in a lot of our discourse about about race in America. That it's it's a much more complicated issue than than we we tend to want to make it. But uh, and this is this is a chat podcast, so we probably shouldn't go too much into this. But it, it's <laughs> right. Um, but you know, I, I did notice this in 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 all of the writing in, in crazy. Um, uh, in Sugarcane Academy and in, in, in definitely in the, in the Zydeco book. And it's something that seems to be um, an ongoing concern for you. I mean, I know you're involved in some of the, uh, the discussions about uh, Confederate monuments in, in New Orleans. Um, and you've also been, 
uh, an advocate for renaming Lusher uh, for the Lusher Charter Academy, which used to be Lusher Elementary School. Yes, my kids, uh, my kids, old school. Yeah, exactly. Named after a guy who explicitly said uh, who devoted his life to the notion that that education is to maintain the su- supposed superiority of the white race. You know, I, I think a lot of it comes from growing up in a very segregated city. I grew up in Evansville, Indiana, uh, and uh, I grew up believing there were certain neighborhoods that uh, were not good neighborhoods to be in uh, because of the race of the people who were in those neighborhoods. Um, and and um, I have to react, I have to uh, figure my way through that background and figure out what kind of a, a person I want to be. I, I wrote kind of specifically about that actually in a New York Times piece about the Confederate monuments, uh, where I consider them to, I, I said they were like just between us monuments, you know, that it, like every conversation, every white person has had some conversation with another white person has said, hey, and, and it's sort of implied that it's just between us white people what about this, you know, and, and, um, it's, it, it is, it, it requires a lot of, uh, uh, commitment and diligence, uh, to reject those conversations when they come up. Um, just as for white folks, it, re- it requires a lot of, uh, diligence and commitment to, uh, to, to shut up sometimes and listen to what people are not white are trying to tell us, uh, which has been a, um, as a writer, that's, that's, that's an, an effort as well. Uh, that's a real effort. You know, part of what I've tried to do in, in, Zydeco, in the Zydeco book was to bring the voices of the Zydeco creators forward and give them a place to talk. Um, and, and in the, in the, in crazy, uh, is to bring this voice of this person forward and to try to, um, to, uh, give his work, uh, a new place where it could announce itself and, and, and some of the meetings that, that it had in it. Um, but, you know, we talk about blinker. I mean, I, I've got them, uh, and I, and I don't always see them. And, uh, it's this continuing process that we're all involved in. And, and either we embrace that process with some humility, um, or we reject it violently. Um, and, and I think that's where our country seems to be, um, where white folks in our country seem to be, uh, seem to be standing right now. Yeah, we're, we're seeing both reactions play out in real time, and it's um, it's a hell of a thing to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, a few more questions as we are uh, nearing the hour mark. Um, you yourself, Michael, are a chess player. Um, I in fact, In fact, I've seen that you sometimes do bookstore appearances where you challenge people to, to, to play Blitz with you. Is that true? Yeah, I ran a uh, – that's happened um, – I ran a uh, I ran the Lusher Chess Program for, for several years, um, and uh, then a guy uh, Nick Mata uh, kind of emerged who I figured would do a better job than I did, and also I just could not get my book on George Harriman done because um, God bless all you chess coaches, it just absorbs every you know it just it, it, it's it's a thing, and just like teaching itself, it, absor- it you know it's a sponge, it, it just absorbs all your time. That's uh, that's part of the reason my dissertation never got finished. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, but I do still like to play a lot. Um, I, I ran for several years. I started and ran a thing called Chess Fest in New Orleans, which was a lot of fun. We had folks like John Bartholomew and Irina Crush and uh, Jesse Cry and other folks come join us and, and do simuls and demonstrations and blindfold chess and things like that which is really my attempt to try to bring some of the fun of chess that I experienced going with my kids to chess camps uh, 
at Emory uh, College, Emory University in Atlanta and St. Olaf uh, up in Minnesota to bring some of those ideas back to a, a place in New Orleans. Um, and uh, yeah, they, we've, we've done... Um, We've done chess events at Octavia Bookstore, independent bookstore. Uh, on Independent Bookstore Day, uh, I'll just set up a chess board and people will come and, and uh, it's kind of in that Charlie Gabriel fashion, just set up a board and see who shows up. What is um, what is the chess community in New Orleans like these days? I mean, well, I, I should let me let me preface that. Right. Uh, what was it like before the uh, the pandemic took hold? Um, we just lost a real light in our chess community. A woman named Jean Trendle who uh, had a company called Cajun Chess, uh, which was an online source for, uh, for chess uh, boards and pieces and books uh, for the country or for the world. But she was also very involved in organizing our school tournaments and, and regular tournaments here uh, in New Orleans. So um, we're really just mourning her uh, passing. Uh, and, uh, and then I think the scholastic chess community had to reconfigure itself, uh, with her, with, you know, in her absence. Um, so that process I think was just starting, but then COVID, COVID stopped that. Um, there, you know, a, a good active uh, school community, some great chess teachers, uh, that are doing online, uh, work now and trying to uh, figure out, um, what this, like all teachers, what the school year is going to be like. Uh, New Orleans Recreation Department has a guy, a friend of mine named Kendrick, uh, Perkins, who's uh, I, I have met Kendrick. He's a great guy. Yeah. In fact, he um, he uh, he was he was he works at the New Orleans Historical Society, correct? He does. Yes. And uh, he actually uh, he he brought out and showed me some of uh, the Morphe memorabilia that they have there. Yep. So I got to hold Paul Morphe's uh, walking stick, which uh, <laughs> I've held that stick. <laughs> it's tiny. That, that's the weird thing. It's it's. I mean, yeah. either Morphe was a midget, or or something is, uh, or part of it has been lost because it's only about a foot long. It is, it is. I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that also. Um, yeah, so but Kendrick runs a New Orleans Recreation Department, does chess camps. Um, and, you know, there's so um, one of the most, and then there's all these uh, sort of individual projects going on. There was, uh, and I, don't, I haven't checked in with him the last few months. Um, I doubt he's able to continue it at this moment, but there was a, a former student of mine named Daniel Coleman. His dad, Rene Coleman, is a, a pretty well-known local musician, bass player in the Iguanas and other groups. Uh, and Daniel uh, started totally on his own initiative, a prison chess program uh, at Orleans Parish Prison, and was uh, not just going in at, you know once every couple of years. He was going in every week and starting a chess club and working with uh, working with inmates there. Um, and I went and. Uh, observed a simul there and it was a terrific chess community that he'd built uh there and he brought in jude acres uh to do an event there also i think jude's maybe done one or two events with daniel um so i don't imagine he's been able to reconfigure that since covid um but uh i, I should check in with him because i'm curious to know he, he was definitely very committed to uh to making this thing happen um so so there there's lots of interesting things going on and then Jude himself, you can't talk about it without. I was about to say you, you have to give us a Jude story before, uh, before I let you go. <laughs> well, Jude, um, Jude Acres, uh, the man in the red beret. Uh, there's a uh, there's a guy uh, making that's been working for many years on a documentary about Jude. That when it comes out, it's going to be extraordinary. I'm quite sure. Um, I should give a plug, by the way. We're working on a documentary about George Harriman as well, uh, with a guy named Jonathan Hawk, who is a and it's on my website. There's a little 
three-second uh, video of some animation of young George Harriman, uh, literally just a little taste of it, uh, running through uh, the streets of New Orleans. Um, that'll be part of the, uh, the documentary. Um, and that's still getting underway. We had to pause the, the interviews because of COVID. Um, but, uh, but Jude, uh, certainly a larger-than-life figure, uh, sets up a table, plays games for five bucks uh, on Decatur Street in the French Quarter, always wearing a red beret, the trademark red beret. He set up tournaments that I've partaken in, uh, and uh, it is all the fun uh, that you, you, you want chess to be uh, going to a Jude Acres run tournament, I have to say. It's just, just a blast. Um, we did, uh, my daughter, uh, who's in, uh, just graduated college was in first grade, uh, and did her, and that's why I met Jude Akers doing a school symbol at Lusher. Hmm. I've known him now for, uh, you know, 15, 15 years, I guess. Um, he's still going strong. He's made it, he's, he's weathered, he's weathered a lot of storms and, uh, I have every confidence will weather this one as well. I definitely hope so. It's 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 uh, a trip to New Orleans if you're a chess player is not a trip to New Orleans unless you stop by Jude Acres' table. So, um, my last question for you, uh, Michael what what's next for you? What what writing projects are next? There's a, you mentioned this documentary. Um, yeah. But, but what can we expect from you in the future? Um, that's the uh, that's one thing I'm incredibly excited about is this documentary. Um, uh, Jonathan Hawk has gotten a lot of Emmy awards, mostly for sports related, uh, documentaries. Uh, one, um, one followed a, a baseball player, uh, back to his home in Cuba, uh, for the first time after, uh, you know, after decades away, you know, another, but a uh, football player, the next best thing, the, the next big thing, uh, that was going to become a great, uh, football player, but did not and explore the reasons why. So, you know, there's a lot of heart in his, in his documentaries and I'm really excited to see what he's going to do with this. And I'm signed on as a producer and a consultant and Walter Mosley, uh, the, uh, detective writer who did devil in a blue dress, uh, is another producer. So, um, I can't wait. We had to cancel a bunch of interviews uh, because of COVID. I can't wait to get back on that again. Um, I've done a, a few other comics things. I worked with a, uh, a festival called uh, uh, the New Orleans Improvisation Festival or uh, Conference. And uh, we spent a day with Jules Pfeiffer, the legendary uh, Village Voice cartoonist. And uh, we filmed, I did one story looking at Pfeiffer's uh, drawings, uh, cartoons of Nixon and Trump and kind of comparing that work. Um, so we did a day long uh interview with him that was filmed and are going to be releasing that online, uh, uh, shortly. Um, and then a, a number of articles coming up. Nothing, nothing. I don't have a book contract right now. I'm working on, on what that next one's going to look like. So. Uh, chess would be a great topic. Just putting it out there. I would love to feel, you know, I, <laughs> you know, um, I'm, I'm here to say damn Frank Brady for writing such a good, uh, Bobby Fisher biography because that would, I, I read that, Biography. I thought he did a ter terrific job, and he was the one to do it, you know, because of his personal connections, and that brought a lot of. Uh, it, it was great. He was it, it brought a lot of poignancy uh, to it, having that connection. But he was also able to step back and, and just write a great biography. But um, you know, it's one of those feelings as a writer where you read this, going, "Oh, I wish I would have had a crack at this at this subject because it was such a good one." Um, yeah, so, and, and, and Frank it was, is he did so well. And he's he's a real gentleman too. I got to meet him uh, for the first time at the the Amateur Team East this year, right before uh, everything shut down. And uh, 
incredibly generous. Um, you yeah. know, just brilliant to talk to. It was it was a real pleasure to meet him. So yeah, it's, that's a fantastic book. Like reading a book that you just wish you would have uh, had a chance to write, uh, and then also realizing that well, this guy did the exact thing that you want you know this book to be. You know, he did it's, it's, it's a masterful work. So uh, absolutely, trying to find a story like that that uh, that a publisher would be interested in uh, in supporting. Uh, that could find a readership. Um, the Kings of New York was another chess book that I, I liked a lot. Um, you know, I thought that was an extraordinary uh, piece of sports journalism uh, mm. set in the chess world. Um, so uh, certainly I have I have played with that idea and tried to find something in the chess world that would make sense as a book and will continue to do so. There you go. All right. Well, uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Um, and uh, if people want to find you, where can they find you? Well, these days at home. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they can find me on my website, michaeltisseran.com, and then I answer emails at that website, so then contact me there as well. Uh, otherwise, uh, at about 9 o'clock every morning at Rue de la Course Coffee Shop at the table <laughs> uh, out on Oak Street, I'm there with my dog uh, getting a cup of coffee and starting my day. There you go. So, uh, stalkers, uh, no, don't, don't do that. That would be terrible. But, um, Michael, again, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to get to talk to you. And, uh, I, I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy this, um, uh, as much as I've uh, enjoyed getting to do it with you. So thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you in New Orleans. From your lips. Thank you. Right. Thank <laughs> Take you. care. It was fun. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.